you've been blessed already this morning? I know I have. Looking out over the group, I'd like to have you think before we uh, begin this message. How many of you know of someone who you wish had been here to hear the messages thus far? I'd like you to think about who those people are. Write their names down, maybe remember them because there's going to be more Amen conferences in the future, and there's going to be uh, greater messages even than these uh, that will be given in the future. And uh, everyone who is uh, interested in truth and God's message to be given to the dying world really should be here that's part of the medical profession. I've entitled uh, this message, Healing the Right Arm. We might want to press function F8 a couple of times there. And uh, see if that will uh, come up. Actually, if you have, uh, I have a, uh, a Bible that I left on the pew during the last uh, presentation, but uh, if we're not able to get this up, we might be able to at least, uh, well, it looks like we might have it right here so you can read the Bible on the screen. My opening text, Matthew 28. Before we open up, let's just uh, bow once again and ask for God's Spirit to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Spirit We thank you for your willingness to incline each heart. And we pray that our hearts will be impressed with your message for us individually as well as collectively today. In thy name we pray. Amen. Matthew 28, Jesus came, spake unto them, saying, How much power is given unto me? All power is given unto me. In heaven only, correct? Not only in heaven, but also on earth. Sometimes we think there's a limitation of the power of God here on this earth. But that's not what Jesus said. He said as a result of that, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Uh, Some newer translations, I think more correctly translate the Greek, go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit ghost. The Trinity is mentioned there, teaching them to observe some of the things I have commanded you. There are people who believe we should only teach some, but Christ said we should teach all, uh, that he has commanded us. And then that beautiful promise. I work in a a hospital. It's not an Adventist hospital, but on one of uh, the computer screens there, when it's not used for a while, there'll be a beautiful scene that comes up that says, Lo, I am with you always. That is a conditional promise. It's a, the condition is that we're doing what he says in verse 19 in the first part of 20, and then he promises to be with us always, even unto the end of the world. Beautiful promise. And, of course, what he taught us to do, uh, we won't be able to go through everything, but in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, he sent out people in the healing ministry. As you go preach, he says, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they were to preach, and they were also to do what? Heal the sick. 
Now, there are those that believe that, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. He didn't say those to the left of Peter and John should be involved in physical ministry, and those to the right of Peter and John should be involved in spiritual ministry. Uh, He sent out all the 12 to do both. And then later on, he sent out the 70 to do both. And in this day of education and licensures and things of that nature, it's uh, typical. Uh, In fact, even the Journal of the American Medical Association published an an article. It was an, an opinion article saying that it was unethical for physicians and dentists to be involved in spiritual ministry because that's not their training. Uh, There was a, uh, and then there I've met pastors who believe it's not ethical for them to be involved in anything that has to do with healing or physical ministry. But yet the injunction was given there. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, even talking about the mental diseases of our time. Freely ye have received, charge them an arm and a leg. Is that what it says? No, freely you have received, freely give. This was to be a giving ministry as well. Well, in 1863, after the, uh, this is a, an Adventist medical evangelism network we're speaking here today, and in 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially formed. Uh, the first general conference session was held. Twenty-four delegates were at that first general conference session. They elected their leadership. Uh, A few days later, one of their leaders, not the president, but one of their leaders, James White, was sick, and there was a Friday evening Sabbath uh, beginning that was taking place, and Ellen went over to James and put her hand on his shoulder and prayed earnestly for the Lord to heal him because he was needed in the work. The Lord did not heal James that night, but he took Ellen off in vision and gave her the visions that have to do with the health message that is to open doors for the gospel message. He, uh, in giving this vision, it was Christ who gave the vision, that's why it's called, in fact, I like a better term for the spirit of prophecy, sometimes that term has been maligned. Uh, The Bible also tells us it's the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus, not only when it was followed, brought James back to health and many others, but it also opened the doors for the gospel message. Now, he who gave her this vision is mentioned there, meaning Christ did not wish the medical missionary work to be separated from the gospel work or the gospel work separated from the medical missionary work. These are to what? These are to blend. The medical missionary work is to be regarded as the pioneer work, It is to be the means of breaking down prejudice. So it's not the means of putting up barriers, but breaking down prejudice. And as the what? The right arm, it is to open doors for the gospel message. Well, the right arm, I don't have to tell you, but in uh, several generations, not just ours, there is a lot of evidence out there that the right arm has been withered significantly. And we won't go into all the aspects that it has been withered. We'll see some of the reasons for it here shortly. But when I was considering the right arm and its withering, I was drawn to a miracle by Christ in Luke chapter 6. came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose 
right hand was what? Was withered. Now, interesting, uh, Matthew and Mark also give this same miracle, the same story. But they just say that it was the hand that was withered. Luke was a what? Physician, paid a little more attention to detail, and he tells us which hand it was that was withered. Now, in Greek, the hand meant more than what we think of in regards to the hand today. In fact, the nails were, quotes, put through the hand, but those who are experts in the crucifixion know where were the nails put? That's right. Actually, there between the radius and the ulna, it actually included the uh, arm, and sometimes the entire arm was mentioned in a way of a hand, but at least this portion of the arm was significantly withered. So we could say that the right arm was withered. Well, I think in this miracle itself, we are given some clues on how the right arm can be restored to its rightful place. The scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their what? What did he know? He knew their thoughts. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, he gave him several instructions. The first instruction he gave him was to do what? Rise up. Now, where in the Bible do we see that term, rise up, in other places? Well, Lazarus was come forth, close, but not quite, looking for that exact phrase. No, that was uh, rise, take up your bed, and walk, close. What's that? Uh, no, that wasn't the exact words either. It actually is an Old Testament reference. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah was living in a day when there was some withering of the body as well. Significant weakening of the body. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Do you think that verse is applicable today, when we're talking about the right arm? There is a need of building up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good unto me, So there was a testimony there by Nehemiah, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, and they said, and it wasn't just him saying this, it was they saying, do what? Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. So the first words of instruction are to rise up. This means not just one individual, it needs to be team. We heard about a team. Uh, here uh, this morning. That pattern needs to be repeated many-fold. The rising up uh, in teamwork for medical missionary work. But when we do this work, uh, you know, interestingly, Nehemiah 2 doesn't end there. It goes on and tells us, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Arabian and Geshem, I'm sorry, the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they did what? They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Interestingly, Nehemiah did not answer them by getting out his credentials. That's how I would have answered him. You know, the king had given him credentials to do this. 
and uh, go back to those type of things. He was willing to be laughed at, but here's what his answer was. Then answered I and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will what? Prosper us. Because the Lord has told us that this work is special and will produce fruit and an opening of the doors of the gospel like no other work, when we get involved in it, according to his plan, he will what? He's going to prosper us. And that is our answer. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Nehemiah didn't mince words, however. He said, but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So the first words, rising up. The second word that Christ spoke to this man was to do what? Stand forth. And the standing forth is something that also needs to be done. I actually plugged these uh, terms in. Uh, well, one of the standing forth can be uh, Daniel. Uh, we know that he stood forth in many ways that were contrary to what people would say that should be done. In fact, a lot of people would say he was narrow and bigoted to make a stand in regards to diet that could have affected his own life adversely. Uh, uh, he could have uh, died for that request, etc., but yet we know that Daniel stepped out in faith and the Lord poured grace into his life. Another standing forth, plug that term into the Ellen White CD-ROM, and there were a lot of standing forth in regards to health work. Your prosperity, Dr. Kellogg, has been in proportion to, and I'm having a little trouble reading it here, so I'll read it here on the screen, has been in proportion to the efforts you have made to make the what? Make the truth stand forth in its purity. So when the truth stands forth in its purity, prosperity will result, we are told, at least in regards to Dr. Kellogg. says your medical practice has been attended with success because of his blessing. And if you will acknowledge him in how many of your ways? All your ways, he will direct you in the paths of complete victory. What a promise to give into Kellogg, and oh, if he would have followed that counsel to have it uh, be led in all of his ways. Another way it should stand forth, meaning the health work should stand forth with what type of ability? Scientific ability with moral and spiritual power and as a faithful sentinel of reform in all its bearings, and all who act a part in it should be what? They should be reformers. And so this is part of standing forth, being a reformer, having scientific ability, but not only scientific ability. It needs to have that, but it also needs to have moral and spiritual power. And notice the standing forth was not just in a corner. He was asked to stand forth where? In the midst. Now, this man would not have wanted to do any of these things, really, naturally. He had a disability. Disabilities were not rewarded in any way, shape, or form in those days. They were looked down upon. Um, and so uh, he would have had to stand forth right there in the middle where everyone could see him. And, you know, the health work and the medical missionary work was not to be in a corner somewhere to be brought out as a gimmick just for an evangelistic meeting that's coming up. It was to be a central part of what we do as a people. And not just we as doctors and dentists, but we uh, as, a, uh, as an entire people. 
to stand forth in the midst, a central part of the work. Now, did this man obey those instructions of Christ? The Bible says he arose and stood forth. Do you think he would have been healed if he didn't? No. It was uh, important for him to obey the instructions of Christ. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He waited a while for that answer. And he didn't get one. He looked around to get that answer. And looking round about them, he gave the man additional instruction. And he said to do what? Stretch forth thy hand. Now the man could have said, Lord, you need to heal it first, and then I'll stretch it forth. I haven't used it for years. You can heal it, and then I'll stretch it forth. But actually the man, we are told, did everything that he could in his mental power to get those fibers to move forward before the healing took place. And the Bible kind of alludes to that by saying he did so and his hand was restored whole as the other. So in the process of following the words of Christ and stretching forth the hand, the hand was restored whole as the, as the other. Now, what is this in regards to how can we stretch forth our hand? Well, I'm going to skip through a little bit of counsel here today, but I think this is instruction that goes to all of us, also in regards to this health vision, it was later health visions, in regards to someone who was thought to be quite successful. But the testimony of Jesus gave words of instruction to him that would also help others. Had you carried the work forward in the lines in which God intended you to, had you done medical missionary work trying to heal what? Soul and body, you would have seen hundreds and thousands coming into the truth. The definition of medical missionary work is healing not only the body, but also healing the soul. Those two things in concert. And that's the way we can stretch forth our hands to our patients. That's how we can stretch forth our hands to others as well. In this work of healing of body and soul, the mind is intricately connected with. The mind is kind of the bridge there between the body and the soul. We're told by the same author to deal with minds is the greatest work ever committed to men. And it's a work that I think we also, as physicians, need to understand a little bit of our own minds, physicians and dentists. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? David is asking issues of salvation here. Who is going to be saved in the end? You know, several times in Scripture this question comes up. It was given to Christ. Christ gave his answer. It was given to Paul. And now David asks the question, Who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and does something else. Anyone know what it is? There it is. Speaketh the truth, where? In his heart. Having true thoughts. Not just saying things that are true, 
but truth in the heart is a vital component to being able to reach minds and also being able to follow the Spirit's leading in our own life. And this has to do with, this is another study, but I'm going to give you a few slides about the ultimate authority in the universe. We think we have to have authorities in every place, the workplace, the school, uh, the, the family, uh, the church, those type of things. And there's politics involved in that to try to in, involve people in leadership that we're going to agree with and that they will go after the other ones who don't agree with us and those type of things. And so... Uh, uh, this is how typical worldly governments are done, and that pattern is also there often in the church. Christ gave some instruction to his disciples, though. He said, Ye know that they were which are counted to rule over the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise what? Authority upon them, but so shall it not be among you. This was not to be the pattern of Christ's government. The pattern of Christ's government is not, in fact, I'm often asked, I often ask this question when I preach a, a different message uh, to people in regards to this uh, and develop it more. I'll ask them, who is the ultimate authority in the universe? And of course, they will say, God, and well, which member of the Godhead is the ultimate authority? If, there's, if they're not sure which way to go, what is going to make them decide to go a certain way? Well... They normally answer, God the Father would be the one saying. He's the one that has the authority position. But according to Mark 10, that's not the way God's government is run. The reason why, in fact, a lot of people don't understand the Trinity because they say, how can two beings be united at all times? Those of us in marriage relationships recognize that can be a problem uh, at least some of the time. But what about three? Whenever you put a third individual in, there's always disunity and disharmony. In order for a government to be organized and effective, we think someone needs to be the ultimate authority so we can all go that same direction. But the ultimate authority in the universe is not a person. The ultimate authority in the universe is a principle. And it's truth. And that's why the Trinity can be completely united. They ask the question, what is the truth? And that's where they go. And, you know, even in our government, we're supposed to make big decisions that way. Whenever we go to court, we're asked to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I had to be in court not long ago, and the individual who was preparing me uh, to understand some of the questions that were going to be asked the next day said, Now, Dr. Nedley, we know that you're going to have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we know that's not a problem. You're going to do that, and we want you to do that. But remember, the person asking you the question has not taken that oath, and they won't. Now, uh, that actually is true. The, <laughs> the attorneys do not take that oath, and it's perfectly legal for them to lie in the question and then you have to try to correct that lie, otherwise you give credence to it, etc. But that's not the way God's government is. God's government is based on truth through and through. And uh, some of the uh, texts here, O Lord, God of truth, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life, and even the spirit of what? The spirit of truth. And there's something that God cannot do. He cannot what? 
tell a lie. Several places in Scripture it mentions that. And by the way, God can, as much as God loves each one of us and he wants us to be saved, ultimately, in his kingdom, God is willing for us. And that that comes to with another principle. There's two principles that go hand in hand, truth and love. But those principles are so high in God's government that he is more willing for you and for me to be lost than for those principles to be violated. Did you catch that? More willing for you and I to be lost than for those principles to be violated. And that, of course, freedom of choice has to do with love. You can't really have true love without freedom. He loves you so much that he is willing for you to make the decision for yourself, to destroy yourself or not. Uh, But he is not in this whole process ever going to violate the principle of truth. Now, the reason why truth is very important, in fact, uh, let's get into uh, another text. I didn't realize I'd put this one in here, but it's a good one. Christ, why did he come to this earth? To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. Boy, when you see that, the reason why people were born, you know, occasionally, in fact, there's someone I'm working with this past week that has really taken hold of a component of the health message in our town. Uh, There is some some things that are excitingly happening in regards to our health ministry at a place called Health Advantage Center. and uh, she was ex- ex- so excited in regards to what was happening there that she just stated, I realize that this is the reason I was born, was to do this type of work. And it's true. There's no one that doubts that in any way. But why was Christ born? He tells us, for to this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. I don't think even we as physicians, and you know, we like to, to believe, physicians and dentists, we like to believe that we are acting in our practice on the basis of truth. And yes, we want to have truth in science, but I don't think any of us necessarily, I know myself included, recognize the vast importance of truth in every aspect of our life, not just science. In fact, recently, it was just, what, three weeks ago, I was up in Oklahoma City And I was astounded in regards to what was happening up there. There was a a decision being made to write rules into a board policy, a medical board policy, uh, that uh, there was a lot of misunderstanding about. And I went to testify. I was against that rule being imposed. And I went to testify in regards to that rule and I was asked, uh, I wasn't the only one testifying, there were several of us, but we were asked to testify first. We were given two and a half minutes uh, to, to do so. The other side had unlimited time. But during the two and a half minutes, I went through quickly many of the clinical studies and the truth that was there. And then I said, listen intently to the other side. They don't have any clinical studies to support the decision that they're trying to make here tonight. I said, to my knowledge, unless I'm surprised, I do not know of any clinical studies that are going to support the decision that they're making. 
Well, it had to, the reason why the truth was obscured is there was economics involved in it. And uh, the other side came up, and to their credit, one of them said, you know, Dr. Nedley said we don't have any clinical studies to support our side. And I'm here to tell you he's absolutely correct. All the studies are on their side. But then he gave the reasons why it still should be gone against. And then the Oklahoma State Medical Association representative comes up and says that the Oklahoma State Medical Association has decided that Dr. Nedley and his group uh, are, are not the ones we are going to follow, and we are recommending that you make this rule. Well, I rose my hand. I didn't know if they would acknowledge me or not. These are all proceedings that everyone's court recording, and I just came up and I said, I am just astonished here because we have just heard that there, are, there is no clinical studies to support the other side whatsoever. Volumes of clinical studies on one side, and this is the first time in my career that I can remember a medical organization corporately siding against truth in an official manner. And uh, the jury uh, who was trying to make this decision at the medical board decided they needed more time, so they didn't make a decision. There's still a decision coming up in November. But uh, since that time, the Oklahoma State Medical Association called me and says, you know, we really didn't make that decision. And uh, we're going to have to get a hold of the record. I think the record is incorrect, and we don't want to side against truth. And so they're, they're backing, they're backpedaling now. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it shows you that even intelligent uh, health care givers are often led to believe things. Uh, that are not true and act upon those things. And that's where CBT comes in. We use CBT in our depression recovery seminars. It helps a number of, of medical conditions, even getting over addictions, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. This deals with truth in the thoughts. We analyze the thoughts and line them up with, tr with truth. But it also helps normal people think clearer, communicate more effectively, fosters unity in group settings reduces polarizing statements, and all of this is accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. By the way, a lot of people think the only way you can accomplish uh, those middle three uh, is by sacrificing the truth. Not true. Uh, you can accomplish those things by uh, having uh, truth be brought out in its clearness. Now I'm going to get in to some things in regards to distortions that many physicians and dentists and healthcare providers get into. Your feelings result from the messages you give yourself. Your thoughts have much more to do with how you feel than what is actually happening in your life. This was spelled out by two, I call them stones. You remember when Christ was going into Jerusalem, he said, if those people don't praise me, what's going to happen? The stones will cry out. These are two secular uh, psychiatrists who have developed a new form of therapy. It's the only type of therapy superior to taking a placebo. Uh, and it actually analyzes the thoughts and lines them up with what is true. Why could Paul and Silas, being taken against their will, their backs laid open with 39 beatings of the cat o' nine tails? Uh, they did nothing wrong. Brought against their will, laid down on a dirt, uneven floor, their feet put up in stocks, and the Bible says they're crying uncontrollably in prison. Is that what it says? <laughs> they should be. If what is happening in our life is what our emotions should be uh, 
related to, they should be, have been crying uncontrollably in prison, but they weren't. They had happy looks on their faces. They were singing. Why? Because their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. And their thoughts were based on things that were absolutely true and were long, uh, looking uh, long in the future. This is what Beck and Ella says. These are the stones. You can change the way you think about things, and you can also change your basic values and beliefs. When I was going to medical school, the first lecture I was given on my psychiatry rotation was to never tamper with anyone's values or beliefs. Unethical to do so. But here's Beck and Ella saying that when you do change your thoughts and change your basic values and beliefs, this is what will happen. When you do, you will then obtain... Uh, See if I can. You will then often experience lasting changes in your mood, outlook, and productivity. And I'm here to tell you that when we change our thoughts and line them up with what is true, not only will we be better healthcare providers, far better, but we're also going to experience improvement in our mood, our outlook, and what else? our productivity in the true sense. What we think affects who we are. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain what? Gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are just wrong or irrational or that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. So emotionally, how can we do better? This is where we get into the ABCs of CBT. The A is the activating event. The C is the emotional consequence. Beck and Ellis call this crooked thinking, and they say it is wrong because it leaves out the B. In fact, this is what Ella says, A to C thinking, believing that we have no ability to influence our feelings and that events and situations directly cause our emotions and behavior is crooked. And it's interesting, the Bible talks about this as well. There's a root word for being crooked or a root word that means crooked, it actually means bent or crooked, and that word is iniquity. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will what? Not hear me. It's not because the Lord doesn't want to hear us. He loves each one of us. He wants to hear us. But you remember, the Lord cannot what? He can't lie. So unless we are willing to straighten our thoughts out and to think true thoughts, he will not be able to influence us in the way that he would like to. So the ABCs, you have the activating event, then you have the belief, and then you have the emotional consequence. So CBT centers in on B. And uh, I know many of you have been sitting here for a while. I'm going to ask you to just stand up for a minute. I'm going to go through the 10 uh, ways. In fact, try to stretch a little bit, see if you can get some blood flowing. But I'm going to go through. There are 10 ways, there are 10 commandments, and there's 10 ways of distorted thinking. These 10 ways of distorted thinking were brought out by another stone called Dr. David Burns. He's a psychiatrist in Minneapolis. Uh, but uh, let's just discuss these a little bit. You can go ahead and, and sit down. Number one, all or nothing thinking. The classic example, I deal a lot with depression. The classic example of that is someone who came to my office and said, I lost the race. He was running for U.S. Congress and looked like he was going to win, but he lost. I lost the race for Congress. I am a big zero. This was an intelligent man, but I could tell he believed what he said. Because he lost the race, he was a big zero. Is that true? No, but that's where all or nothing thinking can lead to. 
How it can, can it be done in regards to uh, medical missionaries uh, and, uh, and uh, other health care providers? You could put your own specialty in there, but often this is the way people uh, think. If I am not the busiest gastroenterologist in this region, I will be a failure, setting themselves up for all-or-nothing thinking. And, of course, their uh, success is not necessarily at all dependent uh, upon this. Another uh, example, I, let's see if I can read it up here. I will be a success if I am the most sought-after doctor in my hospital in town. Is that a true statement? Not necessarily at all. Uh, in fact, that individual may end up uh, being uh, a failure, obviously, to many, but in God's eyes, even though he could be successful in humans' eyes, may not be uh, a success at all. And then we can apply this on others as well. I've been guilty of this. Unless this guy quits smoking now, he is doomed to be an absolute failure. And there's times when it sure looks that way. But you know what? He didn't stop smoking now. And the Lord was still merciful with him and let him go a little while longer to make a decision at a later time. Uh, and uh, so uh, when we start imposing some of our all-or-nothing thinking on others, we can also uh, uh, set uh, ourselves as well as others up for problems. The second one is overgeneralization, a more classic example that can lead to depression. Uh, before we get into the medical missionary examples, it uh, happened to a sweet mate of mine at Andrews University. He was a pre-med student, good-looking, nice young man, very shy, didn't uh, have a courage when it came to dealing with the opposite sex. But he had his eye on a girl for about six months, finally gained up enough courage to ask her out. And uh, we thought he had a high likelihood of success. He comes back to the dorm. He's walking with his head down. He's, uh, I look him in the eye. He looks like he's about ready to cry. And I say, Glenn, what happened? And he says, Neil, I'm destined to be lonely and miserable the rest of my life. <laughs> and I said, Glenn, what did she say? She had another event to go to. And I said, and so you think that? And he said, well, I got to thinking if she just thought half as much about me as I think about her, she would have changed her plans and gone along with me. So I'm destined to be lonely and miserable the rest of my life. Well, Glenn overgeneralized in two ways. The first way he overgeneralized is because she turned him down once, he thought she was what? Always going to turn him down. Did he really know that? No, but yet he was overgeneralizing. The second overgeneralization he made was because uh, she turned him down that 100% of eligible women had identical taste to hers. And thus, he would be endlessly rejected the rest of his life. And uh, people with the overgeneralization don't want to really go out and branch out into new areas. There's a fear of rejection there. And you know, that fear is there for healthcare professionals as well. Uh, particularly when you start to uh, endeavor upon this aspect of influencing the mind in the spiritual and soul winning. An example of this is after you're learning at this conference, uh, you might be starting to uh, do this some, and then you can get so sidetracked, it's happened to me. Uh, and I've actually thought these exact thoughts, so this message is for me as well. Uh, in retrospect, I think she may have actually been open to attending that Bible study 
But I, uh, let's see if I can, I need to actually get closer to my computer here, I think, uh, so I can uh, read this as well or come out here. That Bible study tonight, and I did not even think of mentioning it. True so far, but in regards to that truth, instead of, uh, and it may have been appropriate to ask for forgiveness, it may be appropriate to see what we can do to make that not happen in the future, but instead of that, this is what thoughts can come out. I am such a loser, God will never be able to work with me. That's overgeneralizing, and that will lead us to failure. If I try to incorporate spirituality and health, I will not be able to spend any quality time with my family. Overgeneralizing. And, in fact, there are ways in which you might be able to spend more quality time with your family when once we see the truth of that. Third one is mental filter. Nobody is responding to my spiritual overtones. I should give you the more classic example. This happened, again, to a good friend of mine. Some of you might uh, know her. This was after our anatomy class in medical school. Uh, We had the final test, and she was crying. Uh, She finally started talking. She could think of 17 questions that she got wrong on that test, and she knew that if she could think of 17, she hadn't even opened her book yet, if she could think of 17 that she got wrong, she had failed the test. And she was not going to be able to be a doctor. And she was getting her classmates upset and distraught about it. She got her family upset and distraught through the whole Christmas break. Uh, and uh, she wasn't wanting to go back to medical school. She said, this proves I'm not cut out to be a physician. And uh, they encouraged her to go back, said that maybe she could take the class again, but at least go back and, and start out with biochemistry and physiology, and maybe we can get this thing to work. And she brings her test score out there the first day of class, and there it is, minus 17, 83%. This was by far the highest grade in the class, <laughs> A+. Plus. And so, you know, getting just focusing in on the negative, and continuing to focus in on that. She was going over those 17 questions the entire holiday time period uh, can lead uh, someone into being ineffective. Nobody is responding to my spiritual overtones. Because several haven't responded, we tend to say nobody is responding. And then we tend to give excuses. This is not the Bible Belt. The people in this town are just not interested in spiritual themes. Now, is that true? No, but you'll hear this repeated often among those who are starting to think about spiritual things and just trying to implement it. And if they're not uh, as successful as they think they should be, they will give excuses like this. By the way, any human being who worships, it's a sign that there is a spiritual component to their life. Now, they may not be worshiping God. They may be worshiping someone else or money Uh, or uh, who knows what. But what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom is our frontal lobe size, which means we have the ability to worship. And if someone is worshiping, there is a sign that there is a spiritual component there that that we can still touch. And then if I take time for, for medical missionary work, there is no way I will be able to pay my debts off. Another mental filter where we're just looking at the money aspect and how much less money might uh, come in as a result, and we can get ourselves pretty discouraged. Fourth is even worse. It's not only just focusing in on the negative and continuing to 
contemplate it and talk about it, but it's disqualifying the positive. This is where we, we acknowledge the positive, but then totally discount it. How can this happen? I know I heard a conversion story at that AMAN conference of a patient, but that story is so unique that things could never happen to my patients like that through me. So we acknowledge it as being positive. We've heard some of those positive stories already. But as uh, we just think that it's so unique that it just doesn't apply at all, and so we discount it. It sounds rewarding, but I know there are so many struggles accompanying those that try to integrate the spiritual that I will be absolutely overwhelmed. I'm already having enough problems with what I'm doing, that if I try to get involved in more spiritual ministry, it's going to be overwhelming, and I'm not going to be able to handle it. Even though you acknowledge that it does sound rewarding, disqualifying the the positive. It's a cognitive distortion, and it's a deception. The fifth one is mind reading. Five and six fall under a category of jumping to conclusions. I was at a health lecture the other day, uh, not given by me, but uh, by an exercise physiologist who stated that that is the most common exercise in America. Uh, is jumping to conclusions, and I I think I would uh, agree uh, with that. It's uh, not really physical exercise. But there are some ways in which we do this. We do mind reading. If I recommend a vegetarian diet, he will have a cow and will probably never come see me again. (laughs) We know what the person needs, but we think that they're going to be so repulsed by what they need that we are not going to have an influence over them again. Actually, I I, uh, came up with this as a result of a bumper sticker Dr. Miller told me he saw the other day. It said, don't have a cow, uh, go vegetarian. Uh, (laughs) uh, Another mind reading. John has been through treatment so many times, I know he will never quit drinking. And, you know, I've heard that I don't know how many times in the medical profession. There is no way he is going to quit. And, you know, you see the honest look on his face, and you know he's been through treatment several times, but you just know there's no way he's going to quit, and everybody says it, and the nurses, etc. And so what happens? So why even bring it up? It's not even worthwhile. Well, that's when we start mind reading. We start this paternalistic attitude, and really the missing component in regards to him overcoming is the spiritual component. And if we would emphasize the spiritual, we would be able to have more success. This one, and didn't respond positively when I touched on the spiritual last time, so it will be of no use to invite her to the upcoming meetings. She didn't respond to the spiritual. This isn't part of the ones who are going to respond, and so we don't even take the, the 10 seconds that it would take. And sometimes when I've taken those 10 seconds, I've been surprised at what uh, as who has actually come and who is responding because I can't read the minds. God can. Before we get to the other five, just some more counsel. When connected with other lines of gospel effort, medical missionary work is the most effective instrument by which the ground is prepared for the sowing of the seeds of truth. This is why I was so encouraged to hear the stories of Moscow, Idaho, where they're combining these ministries. This needs to be done more. And you know what I have done Largely, I have been tempted to think of cognitive distortion as well. The health message was to be the right arm to open doors for the gospel message. It's primarily a seed-sowing ministry. But I was surprised to see the truth of this. It's the ground prepared for the sowing of the seeds of truth. 
and the instrument also by which the harvest is what? By which the harvest is reaped. This is not just seed sowing ministry, medical missionary work. It's actually reaping ministry. The Lord has ordained that Christian physicians and nurses, and she would also say dentists, shall labor in connection with those who preach the word. And so there needs to be this relationship there. The sixth cognitive distortion, fortune teller error. People with panic disorder have this. They'll tell me that when they feel this feelings of panic, they're either going to pass out or go crazy. And I'll ask them, how many times have you passed out when you have felt this way? Well, I never have. Uh, How many times uh, have you gone crazy? Well, I really haven't gone crazy. Okay, well, we need to rephrase that thought. That's a fortune teller error. It's not an accurate thought. We need to put it into accurate uh, words now. How can we do that? And just by getting the accuracy there, the person uh, will improve significantly. Suicidal patients have the fortune teller error. They think they know more about their future than God does. It's a cognitive distortion. I know he won't do it because he will think it is too hard. That's that paternalistic attitude again, where we're not, uh, you know, even Dr. Ornish has stated that a lot of people that know that coronary artery disease can be reversed this way won't tell their patients about it because they think the patients won't do it, so why offer them that? And he says there's many more people willing to follow a program than, like that than many doctors believe. And, you know, we do need to be truthful in giving the information. Often there will be willingness there if they know the information and if they can understand it. Here's another fortune teller error we tell in ourselves. If I go spiritual in my practice, I'm going to mess up royal and I'll just end up losing patience and the respect of my colleagues without winning any souls. Fortune teller error, cognitive distortion. And then we can apply it on others. Jason will never be open to changing his lifestyle and certainly will never be open to anything spiritual. Again, Uh, could be a fortune teller error. We tend to assume a lot of things. And by the way, in regards to health ministry, a lot of people, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, uh, the reason why we really, uh, you know, I don't believe in health ministry for those that don't believe in it is because uh, why uh, should we go about just making people healthier and live longer and still go to perdition? Uh, And so, uh, in reality, uh, we're just making sinners uh, more healthy. Uh, But uh, we need to find the truth in regards to this. Those who are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgence upon the health and who commence the work of reform, even if it be from what? Selfish motives. In so doing, place themselves where what? The truth of God may find access to their hearts. This is why... The health ministry is so important. Even though they may start out from selfish motives, they put themselves in a position where the truth of God can find access. And on the other hand, those who are reached by the presentation of Scripture truth are then in a position where their consciences will be aroused upon the subject of what? Health. When I see people making changes in regards to their health, changes in lifestyle, the only way that can happen is by the influence of the Spirit of God on their life. And that means the Spirit is working with them. And that means we need to labor with them uh, more because they're going to be more open to truth wherever uh, it is presented. The seventh cognitive distortion, magnification or minimization. This is where we we get things out of priority. We're magnifying things above where they should be, minimizing where they should be. Here's one that's common. Knowing what I know now, I should have become a dermatologist. (laughs) 
Now, uh, there are, are those who, uh, in magnifying uh, this type of thing, don't realize that the Lord has put them in a specialty for a particular reason, to reach souls uh, in that area. There's something far greater than just the returns and the lack of call uh, and those type of things. <laughs> These new practice guidelines are what? are terrible. You know, whenever we start using the terrible, the horrible, the awful words, often we have things out of proportion. The HTAs is what I call them. And then when we start, you know, when we start utilizing or hearing the curse words, that's a sign that things have been really blown out of proportion. Uh, and my father taught me that early on. He said anyone who uses curse words is a sign they have a limited vocabulary. Uh, in other words, it's not, uh, they're not describing things in an accurate way at all. They're describing things in a very inaccurate manner. And what we really need to be doing is describing things in an accurate manner. We need to expand our vocabulary. And yes, it, we may not have liked those new practice guidelines. Uh, we, there may be some problems with them. We might have preferred that they not be there. Uh, it may be some additional inconvenience. But to start putting them into the horrible, terrible, awful category uh, really is not good for us. And this also, in fact, I should mention in regards to these things, we can even raise our children in regards to the truth aspect. And I do have a, a couple of my boys here with me today. Uh, and not long ago, well, it's been, I don't know how long it's been. Uh, has it been a year ago, boys? Maybe a year and a half ago, we were out in the field playing baseball as our family. We've got uh, four boys. And there were some things that took place on the field that made them quite upset at each other and the tempers were starting to flare, and uh, I realized that I was losing control of the situation and realized I had lost control of it so far that we were really not going to be able to get back to where we were. And so the game was shut down. And I told them, but you're not leaving the field until you sing this song by heart. And I came up with the song at the, uh, the spur of the moment, and the song was this. I don't like it, I don't like it, it's okay, it's okay, I can stand it anyway, I can stand it anyway, I'm all right, I'm all right. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things in life that we don't like, but to put us ourselves emotionally where we can't stand it, and they were thinking they couldn't stand what was happening, and then their emotions got out of control, it actually affects us adversely as well. And often uh, those of us as healthcare providers sometimes exhibit the strongest emotions uh, in ways that are not the best. My most important priority is to build up a nice nest egg so I can retire early. When we're involved in medical missionary work, we need to realize that isn't our most important priority. And even those in the world, when we mention this, they'll realize there are other priorities that are more important. They're often stamping on those priorities for that uh, cognitive distortion. And then we can apply it to others. When someone uh, that we should have reached spiritually and we didn't and we're kind of convicted that maybe we should have, sometimes we're tempted to think this, he would have rejected spiritual counsel anyway and would not have turned out any differently. That's where we minimize. That's not magnification. That's minimization. And, uh, and that's going to end up hurting us and hurting others as well. Eighth cognitive distortion. Well, let's get, get into a little more of the seventh. This is where the I can't stand it comes in. These are the words from Ellen White. When trials arise that seem unexplainable, we should not allow our what? Our peace to be spoiled. 
These might be trials that are totally unfair, totally unexplainable, but we shouldn't allow our peace to be spoiled. However unjustly we may be treated, let not what? Let not passion arise. By indulging a spirit of retaliation, we injure who? Ourselves. We destroy our own confidence in God and grieve the Holy Spirit. Notice this. uh, Whenever we're talking about truth uh, and rejection of truth, this is where we begin to grieve the Holy Spirit. Eighth cognitive distortion. Emotional reasoning. The classic example of this in regards to depression is, I feel like a dud, therefore I am a dud. Because I feel a certain way, that means it's true. Uh, I, I don't feel like doing anything right now, and so I won't. Procrastinators have emotional reasoning. Uh, and uh, there, are, uh, there is another song for that as well. It's Feelings come in, feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. Trust alone on the word of God, it's something worth believing. Because feelings come in, feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. Trust alone on the word of God, it's something worth believing. What do we do medically and in the medical missionary work? I don't feel spiritual, thus I am not spiritual. That's emotional reasoning. That's a distortion. Our feelings can be quite deceiving. Thinking about changing my practice to incorporate soul winning makes me feel overwhelmed and helpless. And thus we think it's impossible. Thus this will be impossible for me. I don't feel like changing anything right now. And so I won't. That's emotional reasoning. And it's distorted thinking. Labeling and mislabeling. This is where we start naming things. Classic example of that is a secretary who's called an irritable idiot by a boss who tells the other bosses that we have a new irritable idiot working for us because of one episode that she had. And then the secretary finds out what she said and calls him a male chauvinist to her other secretaries. And so they go around proving their labels. They try to prove their labels to their other people and it doesn't really do any good. How can that be done even in medical missionary work? That guy does not believe in the ordination of women and is thus a conservative male chauvinist. What could I possibly learn from such a jerk? The labeling and then the discounting of of other uh, things that uh, come into there. And then we can label ourselves. I'm just a secular humanist that happens to go to church with my family once a week. We tell ourselves that we're something that we think we are, but we actually may not be that. We've had that even in our weight loss seminars where people have certain food addictions This happened to someone in our weight loss seminar. And they swore off of ice cream, which was a good thing for them to do. They were losing weight. But uh, four weeks later, after they had lost a lot of weight, their family still had the Haagen-Dazs ice cream there because they were eating it. She gets out a scoop, puts it in there, and says, one scoop isn't going to hurt me. And halfway through that scoop, she labels, she feels very bad, labels herself a pig and says, this proves it. I'm nothing but a pig. And so what does she do? She goes back into the refrigerator and eats the entire half gallon. Uh, this mislabeling uh, that occurs, and we can do it even in, this, and in other terms. I'm just a hypocrite, and hypocrites, by definition, never change. Uh, again, uh, getting into the labeling problems. Ten is personalization. This is where we carry the entire weight of an organization or of our success on our shoulders. No one who came to the study series got baptized. That may be true, but what happens when we personalize it? 
it's of no use, and I'm an utter failure. And so we take an example, you know, another example would be a sixth grader that comes home with D's and F's on the report card, and the mother says, I'm a failure as a parent. Is that true? Not necessarily. That sixth grader had a lot of responsibility. These people had responsibility too. You know, if Christ thought this way, he wouldn't have come. (laughs) And he would have bailed out a whole lot quicker. And on the cross, when all 12 of his closest associates rejected him as he was being taken away, if he would have personalized that, what would have happened? Our eternal destinies would have been decided in the other way. And then it can come the other way, where we personalize it. Look at how many people came to this health seminar. They would not be here if I was not such an intelligent and talented doctor. <laughs> and so uh, because we uh, do things that seem to be on the surface great, we think that we are invincible and that everyone uh, should, quote, be like us. Again, it's a personalization that is going to cause problems. Ellen White says, even the thoughts must be brought into subjection to the will of God and the feelings under the control of what? reason and religion our imagination was not given us to be allowed to run riot and have its own way without any effort at restraint and discipline if the thoughts are wrong the what the feelings will be wrong and the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character ellen white knew a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy long before beck and ellis came about james also knew a little bit about it he said no one should say god tempts because god doesn't tempt anyone Each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own evil what? Feelings. And so we need to elevate the feelings to the level of our conscience and to the level of our frontal lobe. We need to reason those things out because feelings can lie. And that's why we need to utilize our own spiritual nature. Our spiritual nature has to do with reason. It has to do with conscience. And it also has to do with worshiping. Who are we worshiping? What are we worshiping every day? That is going to be the battle of the mind that's going to help us with the reason and conscience. And then the exercise of the will is also a frontal lobe function. The will is our chooser. And that's whether we're going to even choose the thoughts that we are thinking. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all of us, even that don't have depression... Uh, have a tendency to think distorted thoughts. It really gets to the degree of those distortions and how common they are as to whether it classifies as something, quote, certifiable or not. Uh, But whether, uh, and all of us, because of our fallen natures, have this tendency, but we need to seek for a better way. We need to seek ye the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his what? his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that's the amazing thing about our Lord, is he is willing, no matter how distorted our thoughts and behavior has been, he is willing to line that up with what is completely true, and he is so willing to abundantly pardon. Proverbs says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The power of thought... And this cannot be done. We can't line up our thoughts completely without studying what Christ has done and how he did it. What did Christ love to do? Well, he loved to preach. He loved to heal. He was involved in healing more than preaching. But what did he love to talk about? He loved to talk about his father. What else did he love to talk about? In fact, we're given... Uh, the, the question we might ask is, what is his favorite topic? 
Interestingly, Ellen White says Christ, the great teacher, had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. In fact, she even says he could have opened the doors scientifically that it would have made scientists still in deep discovery in areas to this day had he done so. So he had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. But the one which he dwelt most largely was the endowment of the Holy Spirit. What great things he predicted for the church because of this endowment. Yet what subject is less dwelt upon now? What promise is less fulfilled? And occasional discourse is given upon the Holy Spirit, and then the subject is less for, left for after consideration. Many of us have not understood the aspects of the Comforter in that wonderful book, Biography, Desire of Ages. She quotes Christ, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, said Jesus, he will guide you into all truth. The Comforter is called the Spirit of Truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the Spirit of Truth, and thus he becomes what? The Comforter. And so how the Spirit works is in regards to inclining our thoughts, helping us to see distortions in our thoughts, lining those thoughts up with what is true. And when we are truly thinking true thoughts, we will be comforted. That's how he becomes the comforter. She says there is comfort and peace in truth, but there is no real peace or comfort in falsehood. Then she goes on. It is through false, what? Theories and false traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false, what? False standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. So how is it done? Through the scriptures. That's why we need to have absolute truth. This is where Beck and Ellis fall off. Beck and Ellis talk about truth in the heart, accuracy in thinking. But then in the middle of their work, they say there's no such thing as absolute truth, and anyone who believes so is dangerous. Uh, And, uh, of course, this is the the secular uh, way of looking at things. But there are absolute truths. And those abs- when we understand the absolute truths, we can actually more clearly see the micro-truths. And that's why it's through the scriptures the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. The last general conference that Ellen White spoke at was uh, in the late, well, it was... I think it was 1908. I may have the year wrong on that. Uh, She lived till 1915 and wrote after that, but she didn't attend uh, the later general conferences. But interestingly, she looked down in the time span when the preaching of truth would be outlawed and banned, and she said this, I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines, but what? Medical missionary work. Those who are suffering from disease will know where they can go to get healing. And even if it means going to a place where the preaching of truth has been outlawed and banned, they will go there to get healing and truth will be impressed upon their heart. And these will be 11th hour converts uh, that come in. So not only is it pioneer work, it'll be the last work to be done. Why should we be involved in this work? Paul says, for the love of Christ, what? constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. What is Paul saying here? 
What he's saying is, when he looked out in humanity that he was meeting, if they did not have Christ, they were as good as dead. And I think that thought needs to be with me as well. Often I'm paying attention to the details of the lab results and paying attention to the details of those things. And yes, we need to pay attention to those details. And sometimes the patient goes out the door without me even contemplating, do they have Christ? We need to understand things the way Paul did. And I think we need to all become members of not only Amen, but the 4S Club. Because in order to have that love of Christ, we need to surrender our own lives to his service. That's the first S. We need to have selflessness involved in it. And there is sacrifice involved in it. It's a sacrifice that uh, uh, we could uh, possibly name some of those things. And by the way, we shouldn't necessarily complain about those things either. In fact, I was reading the other day that anyone who's complaining about things, it's a sign that selfishness is still in the heart. Uh, And so uh, that's something to keep in mind. And then the last S is the life of service. And we could preach a whole sermon on just those four aspects. They're all different but similar but yet a vital part of this work. The physician who understands the responsibility and accountability of his position will feel the necessity of Christ's presence with him in his work for those for whom such a sacrifice has been made. Who made the ultimate sacrifice? Christ's sacrifice was far greater than any of us are asked to do. But yet we need to understand that it was Christ's sacrifice for them that needs to be foremost in our mind. He, meaning the physician or dentist, will subordinate everything to the higher interests which concern the life that may be saved unto life eternal. And I have a confession to make because I have not done that in a habitual manner. I've done it in a way that's been there on occasion. But to subordinate everything to the higher interests which concern the life that may be saved unto life eternal, even more important than all of the intricacies of taking care of a complex internal medicine patient, is the soul of that patient. And if we're willing to get out in the middle of the night to save that soul in the intensive care unit, to save the life in the intensive care unit, we should be willing to go through other sacrifices to bring them the words of life as well. He will do all in his power to save both the body and the soul. He will try to do the very work that Christ would do were he in his place. The physician who loves Christ and the souls for whom Christ died will seek earnestly to bring into the sick room a leaf from the tree of life. He will try to break the bread of life to the sufferer. Notwithstanding the obstacles and difficulties to be met. So are there obstacles and difficulties? Notwithstanding the obstacles and difficulties to be met, this is the solemn sacred work of the medical profession. And that is the last quote, Councils on Hell 331, that I have, I think, from the pen of Ellen White. But from the pen of Paul, thinking of those four S's, he said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Notice he didn't say, I'll be grudgingly spend and be spent for you. He said, I will very gladly When we're involved in this work, it is a happy existence. 
It is a glad existence. And Paul's counsel also stated, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. In other words, he's not doing this to be loved more. Just like Christ, he didn't come to do this because he wanted to be loved more. He did this because he wanted to have us to have complete freedom. And how can we have complete freedom? These are the last words of Christ. Ye shall know the truth. And not just a knowledge of the truth. When the Bible talks about knowing truth, you know, or knowing anything, Adam knew Eve, the Bible says, and they shook hands. Is that what it says? Adam knew Eve, and Eve what? Conceived. It was an intimate relationship. When the Bible talks about knowing, it's talking about intimacy. So you shall know the truth. It's going to be part of what we do. It's going to be part of our, our thoughts. They are going to be accurate. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.